This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. And this morning, we hear more from the head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii about the vaccine rollout. The first batch is expected to touch down at some point today and could be distributed in the islands as soon as tomorrow. Doctors, nurses, firefighters, and police are among the first frontline workers that will be offered the vaccines. Hilton Rathel breaks down the plan. There is a phased rollout for healthcare workers and frontline providers first, and we also have plans to distribute the vaccine also to assisted living facilities, nursing facilities, and people in congregate living set, what they call congregate living settings, which is for generally for people who are older. And then there are additional phases after that for other healthcare workers in the community, um, independent physicians, dentists, physical therapists, all other types of uh, healthcare workers in the community. And then it gets rolled out to what is called essential workers and then out to the general public. And so it's a, a lot of detail, a lot of coordination. The vaccine is being shipped to For the first phases, for example, where it's going to hospitals, it will be shipped directly to those hospitals, including the neighbor islands. And so we have a distribution plan. Now, there's not enough vaccine coming out in the first wave or the first week to vaccinate, for example, even people in all the hospitals. And so the hospitals will all get some vaccine initially, and then there will be additional doses of the vaccine shipped to the hospitals and By the end of December, we anticipate having enough vaccine in the state to vaccinate all healthcare workers in the state, and then we'll work on, move on to other parts of the population. I think the concern is the refrigeration of the vaccine because, you know, we're pretty far to go from wherever these things are getting manufactured. Well, that is certainly a concern because there are, now there are two primary vaccine candidates, the Pfizer vaccine does require what we call ultra-cold storage, which is 70 degrees Celsius below, which is very cold. But Pfizer, the manufacturer, has been planning on the distribution and they have come up with cold storage containers that contain dry ice. And when these containers are shipped across the country, including to Hawaii, they will be shipped with the vaccine in a storage container. And there'll also be one resupply of dry ice shipped with them. Now, when the vaccine, these containers with the vaccine in them arrive in Hawaii or wherever it is across the country, they will be uh, repacked with the uh, refill of dry ice, and that is good for another five days. And then they can be refilled again with dry ice for up to 30 days. So you can have a total of 30 days of repacking the vaccine. Now, you can pull, you know, some of the vaccine out and then use it, you know, pull the vaccine out and freeze, keep the rest of it at that ultra-cold storage. Now, once the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, is taken out of the ultra-cold storage with the dry ice, it can be kept in a refrigerator for five days. So everyone knows the very specific instructions, and our goal is to get the vaccine into the hands of doctors, nurses, other folks who are administering the vaccine so that none of it goes to waste and it all gets used within the time frame of the cold storage. Now, if we do need to store it for longer periods of time, you can take it out of these shipping containers and put it immediately into a ultra-cold storage container, which we do have in different places in Hawaii, 
and it can be kept for up to six months if you just keep it in a freezer at that temperature. So there is a fair amount of a number of options here in terms of what we can do with this vaccine to ensure that it does not go to waste and that it is distributed appropriately across the state to every community and is used appropriately. Okay, so there are the quality control safeguards. The containers or these storage containers actually come with thermometers in them that monitor the temperature. And so they are, you know, it's monitoring the temperature all the time and it does produce an alert if the temperature gets above the critical threshold. So that is all part of the shipping methodology that has been developed by Pfizer. Now the Moderna vaccine which has not yet received approval, but we expect it to have approval. That just needs to be kept at 20 degrees Celsius, which is minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a much more manageable vaccine. And the Moderna vaccine is the vaccine that we're planning to use in all of our nursing facilities and assisted living facilities across the state. And then how are these vaccines being sent over? Just regular commercial flights? Because, you know, there are fewer flights, or is it going to be special special plane, special cargo? There, there are some extra flights and specific flights that are being used to get the vaccine across the country. So it's a variety of methods that they, but they have mapped out the logistics. There have been, we know um, approximately how many doses of the vaccine we're going to be getting next week. Again, that's pending the FDA uh, emergency use authorization. And we know how many we should be getting the following week, the following week, et cetera. So it's already been mapped out how many uh, doses we will be getting. Dr. Libby Char reported that we anticipate having 81,000 doses of the vaccine in Hawaii before the end of this year. Are we doing any coordination with the military? Well, the military has their own distribution, and so they have a separate round of distribution. They have their own storage capability, and at Tripler, for example, and so the military participants and their families, they have a separate distribution chain from the general public. Now, it's a very similar time frame, and, but Tripler is one of the Tripler Army Medical Center is one of the military distribution hubs so it will be used as a hub for other parts of the pacific but all the military in hawaii will have their own separate distribution chain and that is separate from what the department of health and the hospitals and the counties are working on are there any particular challenges for the neighbor islands for the hospitals there no we are coordinating very closely with all the hospitals we have a distribution plan our plan is to use vaccination hubs, so for, uh, that use the hospitals both on Oahu and the neighbor islands as vaccination hubs. So, for example, on the island of Kauai, we have Wilcox Memorial Hospital coordinating with HHSC, which is uh, Kauai, Kauai Veterans Hospital and Samuel Mahalona. So they are all working together to ensure that all the healthcare workers on Kauai are vaccinated and taken care of. On Maui, we are working with Maui uh, Health System, and they're taking care of all the healthcare workers on Maui and Lanai. Molokai is taken care of because we're working directly with Queens, and they will get their own shipment on Molokai. And then on the Big Island or the island of Hawaii, we have uh, working with Kona and Hilo and North Hawaii Community Hospital, and they are part of the Queens distribution system. So. 
all the neighbour islands have vaccination plans for all the healthcare workers and then we'll be going into essential workers and that has all been coordinated through the counties but we, all the neighbour islands are being accounted for and we'll get it, the, the vaccines are being distributed in waves directly across the islands including all of the neighbour islands. Now under emergency use authorization that is not full approval. Now, flu vaccines, for example, are, you know, they, they are approved by the FDA. And a number of hospitals across the country and in Hawaii do require that frontline healthcare personnel do have the flu vaccine. Now, but that, again, is because it's received full FDA approval, which these vaccines for the COVID-19 will not, at least in the short term. It will probably take another three to seven months for the FDA to give these vaccines full approval. So during that period of time, which is the next three to seven months, while the vaccines are covered under emergency use authorization, no one will be mandating the vaccines, including the hospitals, because again, they are being given under emergency use authorization. Now, it doesn't mean they're not safe. It just means that the, the full review process has not been completed. There's a lot of work that's being done. You know, the, the British government has approved the Pfizer vaccine. The Canadian government has approved the, the Pfizer vaccine. The Israeli government has approved the Pfizer vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine has gone through huge amounts of scrutiny already, but there is still additional work being done. And some of the additional work that's being done is to go into some of the smaller populations. For example, the Pfizer vaccine has not been tested on children under 12. It has not been tested on women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. So there is further review that will happen and will happen over the next few months. And at that point in time, once it gets full FDA approval, then employers can choose if they want to, to make it mandatory. You know, a hospital could choose to make it mandatory. I don't know that they will. It's up to the hospitals to decide, but at, at least for now, and until it receives, until these vaccines receive full FDA approval, they will, they will not be mandatory. So the FDA is being very deliberative in their process. They're not rushing it, even though they have huge amounts of pressure from the Trump administration. They are taking their time. We expect that when the vaccine receives emergency use authorization and we anticipate that it will that it will come with some caveats and including not to be used for children under 12 not to be used for women who are breastfeeding or pregnant now that doesn't mean that a, a woman who's pregnant couldn't ask or, or breastfeeding couldn't ask for the vaccine they could choose to get it but it's the point is it's not being tested on some of those populations. We're also learning more about people who have you know, allergies. There is still more work to be done on that. And the question there is, okay, well, if it does create a reaction, you know, why is it creating that reaction? Reaction? What can we do to mitigate that? Or what could we do to work around those folks who have these strong allergic reactions? But that is a very, very small number of people who, you know, who would have those reactions now. But until we get a critical mass of people vaccinated in Hawaii, we have to continue our safe practices, which is wearing our masks, washing our hands, being mindful of social distancing, not congregating in large settings. We're not out of the woods yet. We're getting there. The end is in sight. But we're still a few months, a number of months away from being back to whatever that new normal is. So we need to, just because you're vaccinated, doesn't mean that you and your family are safe yet. 
it's it, we we need to get uh, the community safe, and we need something like 70% of the population to be vaccinated before we can really let down our guard. That was Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. We talked to him Friday afternoon. He did give us an update this morning. He says Queens was to get its first tray today, about a thousand doses. They will get an additional four thousand doses on Wednesday. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org. You know, among the priority groups to be offered the vaccines are the elderly. We talked to ARP Hawaii's Craig Gima. He's a communications officer with the organization, which is focused on seniors. He talked with us this morning. COVID has taken a devastating toll on the country, especially among people 65 and older and people who live in nursing homes. So this is um, this is hopefully the beginning of, of the end, right? But we, we, we're encouraged by the progress and development and distribution of the vaccine. And then we just want to make sure that um, that whatever happens, um, that, 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 that the rollout is transparent and that the plans are based on related scientific evidence and the vaccines are safe and affordable, which they appear to be, and that there's full transparency about, you know, the side effects and anything else that goes along with taking the vaccine. What is ARP looking at just about, you know, transparency and just managing COVID cases while these vaccines, you know, get rolled out across the state? We're trying to keep track of what's going on with COVID in nursing homes because that's where 40% of the deaths have been. Nursing homes have to report information to the federal government about COVID cases in their facilities. And so we started tracking that. We started taking that information, analyzing it, and seeing how COVID has developed in nursing homes across the country over a period of time because they've been reporting this now for several months. And what we see in Hawaii is that, well, number one, what we said, there isn't really transparency. I mean, if you look at what in August, the, the state released a very comprehensive list of what's going on with COVID cases, not just in nursing homes, but in care home, community care homes and assisted living facilities. And it was very detailed about how many cases are in each type of facility, how many deaths, how many staff people have been infected. And, and, and then it stopped. They just didn't release it anymore. And then they decided they would release just the names of facilities, nursing homes that have um, large nursing homes, basically that have had COVID cases, but it didn't have any numbers about how many cases, whether it's staff, whether it's residents, you know, any details that, that are kind of important. And then they haven't been updating what's going on. Now that they're releasing the names, they haven't updated. If you go on the site today, the numbers are from November 27th, or the names of the facilities are from November 27th. There's still on any numbers. Now, our data, the just released data shows what happened in September and October when, when nursing home deaths and cases were on the rise because of the outbreaks, mainly because of the outbreaks in the Big Island. But we don't know really 
how spread out they are because, you know, the state doesn't release that information. And so what we're seeing is that finally Hawaii has dropped below the national average in terms of nursing home cases and deaths. But we don't know what's going on currently in nursing homes, and we're hoping that the state is keeping track of that kind of stuff, looking at, you know, cases in, in any kind of long-term care facility because these are the people who are most vulnerable, most likely to get seriously sick and hospitalized, and most, most likely to die. So... Other states, like Louisiana, releases daily data about what's going on in all long-term care facilities. Hawaii releases almost nothing. And the data that's on the state's dashboard right now is dated November 27th. There are two cases, one on a facility on Maui and a facility on Oahu. But we don't know how many cases there are in the facilities, whether the cases are residents or staff. This is data that the nursing homes report to the federal government, but the state's not apparently taking this data and releasing it publicly. You know, what we've learned from, from the outbreaks over the summer and in the early fall was that once COVID gets into a facility, it can have devastating effects, right, if it's not controlled properly. And once the positivity rate among the general population increases, then it's just that much more likely that cases will get into nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Yes, we saw what happened at Halaba Prison. Right. You know, things have just mushroomed so quickly. So, so yeah. Our death rate has dropped below the national average, but that doesn't mean we should relax and take a deep breath. We need to be ever vigilant, and we need the state needs to be taking even more steps to be transparent. One of the other things that our, our analysis, our data our dashboard has shown, is that across the country there are shortages of PPE and there's shortages of staffing. And the staffing is a major problem, because imagine what happens if COVID gets into a facility. You're already short-staffed. And you have staff that cannot come into work because they might have been exposed to COVID. And then you have additional responsibilities because you have to set up isolation units. And so the staffing needs increase at the same time your staff is decreasing. And I think that's one of the things we see nationwide that contributes to, to how deadly the disease is in nursing homes and how quickly it can spread because you don't have adequate staff to set up the proper infection controls. And so, again, your analysis is based on the federal reporting. Right. Nursing homes do themselves to the federal government. Right. But so there's a lag. Uh, yeah, there's a lag. There's about a month lag. So this is data from November. And what we're saying is that the state should be updating it. We shouldn't have to rely on a hairpiece analysis and data. I mean, it's interesting because it shows you trends and you can see what's going on. You can see how, um, how the cases rise in nursing homes. Like right now across the country, Nursing home cases and deaths are setting new records based back in November, and that's based on the rise that's happened in the general population. It really varies among location to location, depending a lot on how much community spread there is. So it's important to do two things. One, I think, is to be more transparent and to be more aware of protecting nursing home residents and, and for the state to be more proactive. And two is for everybody to make sure that you keep the transmission rate low to reduce the chances of COVID spreading into long-term care facilities and affecting our kapuna. Okay, vaccine or not. Thank yeah. you so much, Craig. Okay, thank you. That was ARP Hawaii spokesman Craig Gima talking about the lag in state reporting of COVID-19 cases in our care homes. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share some exciting news coming out of Maui. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet. As usual, we're thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through. We've got him on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week's Stargazers, keep your eyes to the skies for Jupiter and Saturn, which can be seen in the West. The two planets are getting extremely close together and will appear as a single object towards the holiday. This arrangement will be temporary, however, as the planets will move farther apart during the sky in 2021. And the moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase. I understand this week we have exciting developments emerging from the Valley Isle. Indeed, the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope has obtained its first images of sunspots on our nearest star. These incredible high-resolution images show features on the surface of the sun in unprecedented detail. The high resolution of the DKIST, as it's known, enables solar astronomers to see features as small as 12 miles across. And explain how this thing gets such high resolution images. It uses a technique called adaptive optics to produce diffraction limited images. This means that the images obtained from the telescope are almost, if not at, the limit that is feasible for a ground-based telescope. Now, this is due to the presence of the Earth's atmosphere. In other words, the DKIST has pushed the absolute limit of the capabilities for a ground-based telescope. And adaptive optics, we know this is used in some other telescopes in Hawaii. Remind us what it does. Well, the image resolution of astronomical objects, including those of the Sun, is ultimately limited by the Earth's atmosphere. The atmosphere is constantly moving with thermal currents, pressure, and density variations, all of which cause images to become fuzzy, essentially. Adaptive optics compensates for these variations in the atmosphere to produce clear images from here on the surface of the Earth. And we're at the beginning of a new solar cycle, so this would be a good time for the solar telescope to be online. Absolutely. What it will enable us to do is to study the interactions between solar plasma and magnetic fields. Why is this so important, you ask? Well, everything on the sun, from sunspots to solar flares, is magnetic in nature. By studying these interactions in high res, we can better understand what makes our nearest star tick. All coming off of Maui. That's a very good story. We appreciate it. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, but we keep it at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. We regularly check in with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat, and joining us for today's reality check is reporter Marcel Henri. He's an online story about rail and potential litigation if the train does not go all the way to Ala Moana Shopping Center. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, morning, Catherine. So, yeah, we've heard lots of talk, you know, as we've gotten to the last stretch of rail. People are saying, oh, we need to stop at Middle, we need to stop at Chinatown, but maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, so you know I've, what I've been doing really, um, while while reporting on a lot of the, the developments that have been happening, all these challenges regarding uh, cost and schedule and utilities along Dillingham and all that fun stuff, is also try and have some some conversations with with people, um, you know, locals on the island, kind of in the know about. 
just kind of the broader implications and the significance of the rail project and kind of frankly who wins and, and who loses. Yeah, if, if, you know, depending on this, this last four miles, uh, which we're having uh, so much difficulty bringing to completion. And as part of those conversations, one of the things that, that came up that I thought was kind of interesting, um, almost as like a case study, yeah, is um, Howard Hughes. Uh, and, you know, they've been developing Ward Village, and, you know, it includes things like the, the Whole Foods down there, the, the Ward Entertainment Center uh, with the movie theaters and Buca de Beppo, that whole complex. It's that general area. Um, but that, that so, so Howard Hughes also owns a lot of property in that area, and uh, Hart and the city need um, a, a particular stretch uh, along multiple parcels between Cook and Kamakei in Kakaako, and that's been kind of this ongoing legal battle, which is still heading to court. Looks very much like it's going to uh, be a you know very a really big consequential uh, condemnation trial coming in March, and the the, the sides are about a hundred million dollars apart on this land about uh, land valuation. So it's it's a big deal. But then on the flip side, what I'm hearing is that Howard Hughes has previously said that they would bring a, a, a quote-unquote huge claim against the city and, and Hart if the rail line, in fact, does not make it through Kaka'ako as planned. So it's kind of like both you know, both sides of the coin, you're, you're facing um, some sort of significant legal action, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing with, with Howard Hughes, but I think it kind of illustrates kind of the, just the broader implications of the rail project and kind of how that impacts you know, development and, and just really kind of the, the shape of the city going forward. And where are the parcels exactly in Kaka'ako? So these parcels are generally between Cook and Kamake'e. And if you can kind of even just picture like a, a line that's, that's snaking across multiple uh, blocks of, of parcels, right, of, um, of like properties that, that people, that Howard Hughes owns. So it's basically a, a snake across these, this, this, you know, these multiple blocks. So they, they need basically partial takes or easements from these parcels in between Cook and Kamakei. I guess some might think, gee, if they're going to uh, gain with the rail ending at all of Moana, why don't they just donate <laughs> the land? Well, that, and that's certainly, you know, Hart has, has taken um, Howard Hughes to task in some of the, the some of the glimpses that we've seen out of this, you know, both parties are are declining to comment um, out of because of the the litigation that's that's coming. Uh, but they have seen testimony. They've had some conversations back and forth in public meetings. Um, and Hart has made that point that you guys are are, you know, and have been using the rail line to kind of um, both to apply for this these developments and to uh, to market them to to sell them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's still just a, a very contentious legal battle. Howard Hughes has its own reasons for why it's pushing forward, um, you know, and, and I don't know. We may see this all come out in court next year. Okay, and then I know you're still looking at the uh, uh, PPP, Triple P uh, uh, partnership and the information that could come out on that. So hopefully uh, we'll see where that goes. That's right, yeah. All right, okay. Still working on it. Okay, thanks so much, Marcel. Okay. Thanks, Catherine. That was Marcel Henre with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. You know, we wanted to spotlight a series that we aired recently about the past, present, and future of rice in the islands. Did you know Hawaii supplied rice to the states during the Civil War? We take you back to the future. Koi farmer Jerry Ornelas uh, recently began planting his winter crop of rice. His summer harvest was bountiful, and he's encouraged by his success so far. We were there on the Garden Isle early on in the year to check on Ornelas as he's trying to carve out a new market for Hawaii-grown sushi and table rice. This is a little winter nursery that I'm doing. It's got 20 different varieties of rice in it. Most of them are um, japanica, which are short grain, but we've also got some other varieties as well. It's about a month old right now. And so what's your hope for this? I think the big picture is that we revive the rice industry here in Hawaii, which was once thriving. You know, we're a state of rice eaters, and I think there is a demand for locally grown rice. So for many, many other uses, um, everything from uh, table rice to brewing to very high-end sushi rice. You know, varietal trials are going to be very important. We need to select varieties that do well here, and rice in general does really well in Hawaii. It's amazing how adapted it is to our climate. That relates to why it was once such an uh, important crop here. You know, as you were driving around Kauai, you were pointing out areas that all used to be in rice. It's just here and there now, you know, you've got farmers doing research in order to kind of jumpstart this again. It's going to take a tremendous amount of effort, I imagine. You know, a lot of the farmers that obviously that used to do rice are no longer with us. So it's going to be a kind of a steep learning curve for us. Fortunately, there's resources out there. There's, you know, the University of Hawaii, there's the Department of Agriculture, the USDA. You know, one of the problems we're having, of course, is finding rice seed, which is really hard to come by. Talk about that problem. Yeah, rice is heavily quarantined because of diseases, so virtually impossible to import rice seed from any country into the United States. The other problem we're running into is that a lot of the rice varieties are they're proprietary. So uh, a lot of it has been developed by rice cooperatives whose members contribute so much per ton of rice that they sell to research. So it's very difficult. They will not part to the seed. You've managed to get some varieties, though, to kind of jump start this test plot. Yes, I have. You know, I've been at this for four years now. You know, finally, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We are able to do some varietal trials now. We've been growing some varieties that are what we refer to as heritage rice varieties, but, you know, we don't know much about the quality of the rice. So we're looking for varieties that are, are well-recognized. Those would include table rice as well as uh, rice used for brewing and uh, mochi rice as well. When you talk rice for brewing, I mean, that could be another niche market. Is the trend now for craft beers and sake? Mm -hmm. Sochu, sake, craft beers, all of the above. I think, you know, if we can supply brewers with good quality rice, then I, I think there's real potential for expansion of, of that. Talk about the challenges that you've had, either just with water or bugs, uh, birds. <laughs> Birds are a huge problem. As you can see, um, our fields are all netted. You know, water is an issue. It's becoming more and more contentious. You know, rice uses a lot of water. So, you know, we're trying to develop methods. The water comes into the field and then exits, usually back into the same source it came out of. So that's a non-consumptive use. Well, right now we're kind of in the proof of concept phase. 
where we, we're trying to see what varieties work well, what methods of cultivation work well. We haven't really gotten into marketing yet. Once the proof of concept phase is done, then we're going to start looking at what kind of markets can we access. And there are other farmers here on Kauai that are testing out rice again. Yeah, there is, there is one operation on Grow Farmland that does rice research for a California rice cooperative. And that's been going on for a long time. The University of Hawaii also had a um, paddy crop station in Wailua where they also did rice research for the California growers. So Kauai is a popular place to do rice. And of course, it's had such a long history. So it's rice seed is what we're talking about. Yes, that's correct, rice seed. You know, because we can do a winter crop, it's, they can't do on the mainland. They look to Kauai to do their winter nursery growing. And so if there are other folks out there that are interested in experimenting with, you know, kind of like what you're doing here, whether it's here on, on Kilauea or Oahu, I mean, I don't know, because Oahu used to be covered with a lot of rice paddies as well. Yeah, the two major rice growing regions uh, at the height of the um, rice industry was Kauai and Oahu. What else, I guess, is a big challenge? We got flooded out in, in April of 2018, and that set the whole project back a year. You know, obviously, you know, rice is uh, much like taro is grown in areas that are prone to flooding. So flooding, you know, with climate change, I think is go it's really going to be an issue. Yeah, one of the saving graces of rice is that it can tolerate brackish water more so than taro. So I think some of those coastal areas will be well suited for rice uh, going forward. You attended a recent climate change meeting uh, where a number of farmers turned out. What are some of the issues that uh, were discussed at that? Sources of water, flooding, salt intrusion in the lower elevation farms. You know, the perception that farmers are polluters, that we're contributing to the problem. And to a certain extent, we do. Of course, we do use fossil fuels. Some crops, especially paddy crops, contribute methane, which is a very bad greenhouse gas. So, you know, how do we, you know, mitigate some of these problems and how do we respond to questions from the public regarding this? You also had some ideas about teaming up with the tourist industry, looking for ways that that industry can help our farmers. Yeah, as it relates to climate change, you know, farmers also sequester a lot of carbon in their farms, as do ranchers. So is there a possibility that there could be some kind of carbon credit exchange, you know, with, with industries like the airlines, which contribute a lot of carbon to the atmosphere, the cruise industry, tourist industry in general? You know, is there a possibility that we can team up with them and help them to offset some of these carbon? Help our local farmers survive. Yeah, that's correct. You know, we have a real problem with profitability in farming in Hawaii, and one of the reasons more people don't farm is that it's not a really lucrative business at this, at this uh, point in time. Well, you've got this test plot of rice, but you're surrounded by all your trees because you, you raise everything from lychee to avocados? That's correct. Yeah, long gone, lychee, uh, breadfruit, some breadfruit, some avocado and uh, mostly orchard crops. But if we're serious about feeding ourselves, then we're gonna to have to look at what it takes to have a very healthy diet, right? Which of course includes um, carbohydrates. You know, leafy greens, great, man, want superfood, right? But, you know, we're gonna to have to find starches, you know, and we don't have, we don't grow many grains in Hawaii. And the only grain we can grow here successfully, I think, is rice. 
rice is about a four or five month crop, depending on the variety that you plant. So, you know, there is the potential for us to do several crops a year. That was Kauai farmer Jerry Arnellis, who was working to spark the interest of local farmers in reviving rice as a local crop. We originally ran the story in November as part of our rice series. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for joining the conversation. Now back over to Pledge Central with Bill and Ryan.